Nice to see everyone. Welcome to Mace Way. Some of the stuff we're talking about tonight will include a guy that goes on a journey, and he stays on that journey for a while, and the journey changes him, um, and he eventually decides to come home from that journey. So this song, I thought of this song by the Avid Brothers, uh, because it just sort of makes me think of a journey that someone's making that's a difficult decision.
Your dreams, they catch the world the cage The highway sets the traveler's stage All exits look the same Three words that became hard to say Thank you, Mark, Casey, Brad, for that great lead-in to this night about story and the challenge and the pain of human connection. This was a great kickoff. And welcome to Emmaus Way, everybody. My name's Ben. Um, I'm on staff here, and we are glad that you're here. Um, but as we often have learned to start at gatherings, we've very used to, I'm going to kick it back to our kids for our community song. Thank you, kids, for that robust performance. So welcome again to Emmaus Way. If you're new or if you're not, we're very glad to have you. Getting into the middle of August, this is always a time of sort of renewal. A lot of people starting new things in our community are starting similar things for a new time and new visit people visiting, coming into the area. So that's something that's normal for us, and it's always an exciting time. For us, um, I have a couple things I might say around that theme, but before I do that, are there announcements that I don't know? SK, I think, is in the back. Anybody else? Something that's happening soon? Katrina, do we have a... Oh, Mark. Lebowski Fest. <laughs> Mark wants to make sure that in vintage Emmaus Way tradition, the, the big Lebowski has been a, at least in pub group, has been a, a, a linchpin, a theme, a... A guiding light at times, and so it's what it's it's Saturday next Saturday night at the art the uh, art museum in Raleigh. They projected up on the side. I don't remember how many people were there last year. It was unbelievable. How many? How many I, a total, yeah, it was like five, ten thousand people. It's huge, thousands maybe of people. 30, maybe <laughs> maybe a hundred thousand. People wear costumes. There's, a, there's like a costume show. There is a costume competition. Food trucks. And it's, it's a lot of fun. So if you're interested in going, some of us are definitely planning on going. So get in touch with me or Ben or somebody. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's, a, it's a great venue. If you haven't seen the Big Lebowski, there'd be no better way to introduce yourself than outdoors in the company of hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs> so, yeah. Get in touch with Margaret. Katrina, we have like a reality work day coming up too, maybe? And is there a time set for that yet? Or are we still? Okay, so 12 noon at the Reality Center. We started some painting projects that we're going to follow up on in the thing. I think we might do some cleaning out in our storage space. There may be some other things, but that's kind of part of our ongoing effort to Reality Ministries. If you're new to them, they do wonderful work 
through the week with um, developmentally disabled adults. Um, and so, yeah, we're glad to count them as a partner and, you know, like to do this chip-in thing every once in a while for the space that we both share. Anything else? So I'd say just a couple of overarching things with, like, the fall, new beginnings. One is if you – we don't say a lot about this from the stool. We try to keep the announcements to a somewhat a minimum. But if you want to get plugged in a mass way, there's some great ways to do that starting – here tonight, there's a yellow card you can fill out that will get you on both our social, if you want, which is sort of like a, you know, community listserv. There's a weekly listserv you can get on that, uh, you know, our gives a weekly update about our gathering that week. Um, there's a green card there that will give you a lot of contacts for things like pub group, which meets on Thursday nights, small groups, volunteer rotations. If you want to meet with a meet with the staff person, learn more about the community, all that kind of stuff is over on the table, drop it in the bowl, and we'll get you connected that way. Yeah, Brett. The group that goes out to dinner after church, um, and so grab me, and we'll, whoever, you have a great idea where to go, and we'll go there. Yes, thanks for that reminder. Yeah, that's like a weekly thing, and Brett and Sarah are often in the middle of that. Um, another thing is we're going to be welcoming a couple of new staff people. Um, one person, we've gone through a long process in the spring and summer to hire a new bivocational pastor. We just sort of learned this week for sure that she will be moving to Durham on the 17th um, So, and be officially joining us in September, but sort of be in the area pretty soon. So we're looking forward to that. In addition, we've got a um, person who's going to be coming on board our staff as an intern. Her name's Mary Elizabeth Hanshi, right? Is that right? And she'll be kind of working us with some kids stuff, interested in learning what we do aesthetically. So, yeah, we'll have some new, new faces around, and we're excited about that. Anything else announcement-wise before I kick it back? All right, Mark, Brad, Casey, let's lead us into our dialogue. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Ben. So I do want to actually introduce Brad tonight, because he was here last week, but I don't remember if, if Brett introduced him or not. So this is Brad Porter, everybody, playing drums tonight. Brad plays with a local outfit called Wild Fur. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, Brad? Uh, <laughs> I play drums. <laughs> I'm also the uh, managing director at the Art Center in Carborough. So that's my nonprofit heart work. And this is my music heart work. And you guys, when are, when are um, I, I haven't actually gotten to hear that much of you guys' music, but when are you playing sometime soon? Anytime? I believe we're doing a Hopscotch Day Party. That's the next. Cool. Casey's in the group, too, in case you didn't. Yeah. I didn't, yeah, I'd forgotten that Casey plays with you guys. Casey plays with everybody, though, yeah. Right? Casey, again, our staff bass player over here. He's here every week. Plays more than I do. I, I joked I was going to ask him a question about his band, Mount Mariah, but he told me not to, so I'm not going to ask him about that. So we did this song a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I don't remember when it was, sometime not, not too long ago, and I remember I, I mentioned with this song that it's a little difficult to know exactly what this song is about, um, and that I had never really read a great explanation of what this song might mean. So leave it to one Josh Busman before he left us to explain to me what he thinks the song means. And I actually think his idea is a really great one. Um, he said he, this song makes him think of the prodigal son. And he said he thinks of uh, the singer of this song as somebody who has gone into a foreign land um, and who is broken uh, and singing about that experience.
So if that song is about being on this journey in a faraway country, this is a song about coming home.
Thanks, gentlemen. Good to see everybody here today. It's uh, good to be, uh, I won't say I've been in San Francisco this week on a family vacation. It was not good to lose the, uh, the high of, what, 68 degrees every day. So that, that, I will say, was not to be good, good to be back from. But it's good to see all of you guys again this Sunday and also some new friends. Um, this is our opportunity in our worship gathering just to give you a chance to stand up, to greet the people that are around you, offer them the peace of Christ, or just say hello. If you're around somebody you don't know, of course, introduce yourself, and we'll chat for just a second and listen for me. I'll give us a shout, and we'll jump into the dialogue today on Luke 15. So please stand and greet each other. So we, this summer, have been kind of leading into the month of August where we're really focused on uh, the practice of storytelling and how storytelling lives in our community. Um, Personal storytelling, listening to stories, telling our own stories. And over the next um, three or four weeks, you're going to hear a lot about um, uh, one of my favorite texts in the New Testament, Luke 15, uh, three stories about lost items, a lost it's really multiple lost sons, uh, a lost coin, a lost sheep. Uh, we'll, we'll get to all of those. Uh, but I want to remind you of just a few things that I said last week. This is very, very common sense stuff that you have heard a billion times at Emmaus Way. But let's say it again just to remind ourselves of this. Uh, one is that that story is absolutely essential in, uh, in framing our lives. Stories provide the thick context of meaning for all that we do. In many ways, we, we see our, ourselves as living into a story, as a part of a story. Uh, often we frame our lives with this understanding that we began somewhere, we are somewhere right now, and we're going somewhere. And if you ask people to talk about their lives, they'll often kind of orient that around stories. We're also people who are deeply impacted by stories, uh, the things that uh, like I guess uh, Mr. Mark Williams may uh, have had some sort of inspirational moment from the, the Big Lebowski. Uh, but uh, media, stories, films, all those things tend to have impacts on our lives. We see those, we see reflections of our own soul in those things, or we see radical dissonance from our lives and stories, and sometimes they, uh, they inspire us in that way. And one of the things that I've said many, many times to you guys is kind of, this comes from you know, 30 plus years as a pastor is that uh, people who struggle to find a story that relates to their life are often very near despair. Uh, It seems like knowing, having a sense of kind of a narrative sense of your life is often the opposite of being totally frantic, totally disorganized to the point of asking those big questions of why am I here and what am I doing and what really has meaning around me. Uh, We've also talked often that uh, even for moving from a beautiful thing to another beautiful thing, um, that changes in our life stories are crises. They're upheaval. They're frightening. Perhaps you have moved here recently from uh, somewhere else where you had something amazing going on and you moved here for something amazing, a job a program, a relationship, something that you're really, really excited to be a part of. Uh, but nonetheless, that sense of the story that I was in is, is, is really different than the story that I'm in now often provokes some sort of uh, disequilibrium, uh, a sense of crisis, a sense of, of kind of not knowing what you're about. And that's incredibly normal. And, and, and of course, as I look around the room, many of you I know so well, um, I know that you're, as your lives have changed, you've probably experienced some of the the most painful moments of your life as part of this kind of radical story change. Perhaps you were married at some point.
point and your, your relationship or marriage dissolved and in doing that, the way you told who you were had to change incredibly differently. And that's uh, very normal, uh, especially here in Emmaus Way where one of the things that's really beautiful about our community is that we come from lots of different kind of theological stories. And we have people in this room who are have came from very conservative and very evangelical circles. We have people who came from mainline uh, circles. I, one of the things that's going to be really exciting, uh, Molly, who's coming kind of as our, our new kind of bivocational pastor. And I'm sure you'll see Molly here on the stool leading the dialogue several times in the fall and looking forward to kind of having another, another voice that's a part of our life. Um, she comes from a very, very mainline tradition. And so for her, she didn't have that experience of being maybe part of a conservative church at, at any point in her life. So, but as I look around the room, many of you have had pretty radical changes in your sense of theology, some of them due to being part of this community because you got to know somebody here who you respected deeply, you cared for, you loved, who saw it differently, and perhaps even the way that we do things in terms of the dialogue where uh, you're not just kind of hearing my experiences or the things that I care most about, but you're going to, even tonight, you're going to hear hopefully some stories from people around the room that will have experiences that are radically different from anything that I could conjure up. And, And so to some degree, that bit of dis, uh, disjointed upheavalness uh, we produce as a part of our community life here by listening to each other and not letting ourselves get completely and totally comfortable in a story that you might hold on to that says this explains the world perfectly. Because I'm not sure there's any single story that explains the world that we're in. In fact, I, I think for me, there's many, many times where I would have despaired in my faith or reached tremendous points of crisis if it wasn't for your stories. Because there are Sundays that I come in here and I really haven't sensed the presence of God in my life or in the world or what's going on. Or maybe I've been face to face given all the work that we do in terms of of kind of local politic where you're face to face with a profound injustice. And and it's it's like Brian's question uh, a few weeks ago. Sometimes we're, we're incredibly enthusiastic about the work of God, but we don't always see it happening around us. And there we're incredibly dependent on each other's stories to motivate us, to give us a sense of hope when we don't have it, or to offer hope to each other when and we're struggling. So story change is a crisis. The absence of story is a crisis. And the other thing I would say, and again, this is all review for us, is probably if you were to ask me the most common pastoral meeting that I've had, if you could sum it up in a sentence over 30 some odd years, is helping people ponder the story that they're telling and wonder if there's a more liberative story that they could tell about their lives. And, and many of you have, have experienced that many times where you said, you know, this is how I describe myself. This is how I saw myself. But now I'm in a place where I would say that I'm really, really different and I see things incredibly different. And for us, that's really what uh, liberation looks like. It's what spiritual growth looks like. It's the development of hope, all of those things. So that's all review. But story is incredibly essential. Um, when we, we just finished a practice as a community that we call listening sessions, where we kind of get into all of our small groups and listen to you and ask you, what should we be doing as a community? And those of you who are old hands around here know that almost everything that we do missionally comes up from the life of the community. It comes from you rather than from a, a, a leader in our community that's saying we should do this. And one of the things that you guys said, I'll read this again, Ben wrote this so beautifully, but uh, it was on the notion 
tradition of storytelling. Um, you said we're energized by telling and hearing individual stories, and, and, and this creates a hunger for more stories. We need and long for authentic relationships that emerge through thick storytelling. And that's a really wise insight from you to know that we, we connect much more deeply with each other when we hear more about our lives. And then finally, another thing that was said, this has been summary, we're looking to find real connections between our individual stories and our community identity. And we've done a lot of work as a community over the last several years talking about who are we as a community, especially given the the sense that we're so close to the universities and we're in a part of town that has a lot of people coming in and coming out. We have to do that work all the time because we will be a different community this year. We will look around this room in October and I can guarantee you there will be 20 to 25 people here that you don't don't know very well, but their voices is enti- are entirely welcome in this. As we say all the time, as our dialogue changes every time a new person comes into this room or a new person commits themselves to our community life. And so we're constantly working on our identity, but I know that also means that we have to tell our own stories and figure out how do I fit in this community that we call Emmaus Way every year. It's just part of our life and our task together. And so one of the things we're most excited about doing is telling the kind of liberative stories that help us not only get a sense of hope, but also a sense of meaning of where are we going, how are we serving, what are we doing, how can we be a part of God's amazingly generative and redemptive work in this space. So that's all review, but we'll probably say it again fairly soon because story has been so essential to our life. Right now we're part of a a practice that I want to remind you of. Uh, We'll have to remind you of this many times because it's August and people are still kind of on vacation and all those things. But we've committed ourselves to a practice of of kind of relational meetings. So I have challenged you and our leadership has challenged you over the next month to six to eight weeks is to try to have a meeting or two. One, two, three, four, maybe five meetings or, or just one where you get a chance to meet with somebody in our community and share some storytelling asking each other about each other's lives and and listening carefully to the answers of that. So again, I want to challenge you. This is a a beautiful practice. It's one that really thickens relationship in our community. Uh, Don't be afraid tonight at the communion table or or at any other point. Just, you know, grab somebody maybe that you don't know and say, hey, why don't we get a cup of coffee or a beer or something like that? And I'd love to hear your story. I'd love to tell you a little bit about mine. And so over the, in the next several weeks, after you've had two or three weeks to do that, I'm going to try to think of some ways to incorporate Incorporate that in our, our dialogue and our life together. But I want to challenge you to do that. Uh, uh, I'm going to try to do at least one a week over the next four or five weeks where I connect with somebody who's not kind of somebody I was already going to meet with over something else. Um, and in those meetings, really simply, here's a few things you can ask. One is because our connection point is a mass way. Ask, how did you get connected to this group? What, what brought you in? Maybe somebody brought you kicking and streaming because you're going out with them or you were wandering around Durham and walked in the door or somebody who's, who's been a part of this community for a long time said you ought to come. But what brought you in? What got you connected here as a, a community? Um, another thing I think is always interesting to tell each other is the mundane. Is you know, I'm, It's much easier for me. In fact, I, I say this, Jenny, I remember when we first started Emmaus Way, one of the things that, that I could say of you was, I know Jenny is a good friend because our, our kids were fifth grade and third grade when we started Emmaus Way. And Jenny could come over to our house 
And if we were doing something else, she could run roughshod over our fifth grader and our third grader, get them to do homework, get them to eat, have some fun, watch the Gilmore Girls with Kendall, and the day would go smoothly. In fact, our kids were like, you know, it's actually a little easier around here when Jenny's around here and you two clowns aren't not. Uh, but that's when, when, somebody, when you know somebody's kind of mundane aspects of their life, uh, that's when you start to know them. So it's a wonderful thing to share is what does my day look like? When do I head into the office? When do I... Uh, wake up. When do what do I do? Uh, you know, I know Mark well enough to know I wouldn't do this to any of you, but I had a question one night and I called him at one in the morning because I know that I would never call Mark at eight in the morning. But at one in the morning, I was thinking, you know, this is probably my best chance of the day to catch Mark. And it was not one of those fake like I'm asleep, but I'm going to pretend I'm not. It was like a quick one ring cell phone. He was in his studio doing something, and I, I just asked a quick question. That's when you know how people live. It breeds a familiarity to that. So, so, you know, what do you do every day? Uh, how did you get connected to Emmaus Way? And then the third category that I think will be really interesting to ask each other is a little bit of spiritual autobiography. Is you know, What compels you to be a part of a worshiping community or to seek to be a part of a worshiping community? Because all of us have some really different beliefs and different backgrounds. There are people in the room that are not theists. There are people that are. There are people from all types of traditions. But what drives you to be a part of, of a worshiping community? Here's another question that is a good question for spiritual autobiography biographies is what impedes you uh, what prevents you from being a part of a worshiping community what holds you back from feeling comfortable in a group of people that call themselves a church uh, and then if another question is what do you hope to experience what do you hope to be motivated to do as a part of a christian community so those are just some simple questions that kind of get at the whole idea of spiritual autobiography but what i thought about for the next several weeks is that we would look at luke 15 i think if there's ever a good story or set of stories in the New Testament that drive us to talk a little bit about our spiritual autobiographies, this is a good one. So listen to the stories that we talk to through here. These are be great questions to kind of ask each other. So we're going to look at, at Luke 15. And, and, and just for um, tonight, why don't we read the text first? Sarah, I think, were you going to read for me tonight? That would be fantastic. This is Luke 15, verses 11 to 32. Then Jesus said... There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered up all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here am I, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. 
he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a rope, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get a fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your, your, your brother has come and, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you. And I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. Because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Sarah. So I was drawn to this story kind of partly as a challenge. I told you a little bit this, about this last week. I was sitting with a, a group of friends, uh, one in particular, that were in pretty intense uh, life change crisis. I mean, just absolutely frustrated. And occasionally, these are this. Apparently, this is pretty normal as a part of kind of graduate student life. Just kind of hovering like one inch over self destruction at all times. Uh, so, so this isn't like uncommon for this to happen in my office. But it was one of those bizarre days where. There were five people in the room, and, and the, the, the four other four besides me looked fairly dangerous at that point. And, and, and one friend was so frustrated that it was, just, it was going entirely kind of off the charts. And they, they liked to have fun with me because the, I think it, in that circle in my office, I'm, I'm the only pastor that all of them know. So if they were like, you know, alone and somebody said, hey, do you know anybody who's a pastor? Uh, They would all say me somewhere else because I'm the only one who knows who they know who has this kind of crazy job. So whenever these things happen, a lot of times I'll get asked all kinds of questions or or dared. And so one of my friends, the one who was most frustrated, said, uh, you know, it's like that ridiculous story. I think it's in the Bible. I think it's absolutely the worst story that I've ever heard told. And it's the story about this guy that literally wrecks all of his family fortune, comes back. And let me tell you what, if I were the older brother in this story, I would have kicked that guy's ass. I mean, and, and then he went on to an, a, another level of anger and frustration in this. And, and so I took it as a dare because I've always kind of taken this story as one of the most liberative stories that I have ever heard. 
But I was like, wow, there's a lot of ways to hear and tell this story. And they said, well, what would you say? I mean, like, and we're talking about the circumstance that we're in. Where is there hope in this moment? And so we got to talking about this. So I said, well, I think maybe we'll talk about this in a Emmaus way. You guys know also I'm a huge fan of Henry Nowen. Um, uh, Ellen, who, you know, Ellen always asks me, like, what's, you know, what's the text of Emmaus way? What are the books that, that, that everybody ought to read to be part of this community? If I were answering that question, Ellen, the Henry Nowen's The Return of the Prodigal Son would be probably the near top of my list. I absolutely love that book. I read it at a time when it was really, really significant. And so there's several things I'm going to say tonight that come from Henry Nowen's telling of this. But he wrote that book reflecting on a time that he was incredibly lost in his own life. He was teaching at Harvard Divinity School. He was fairly famous at that point, lecturing all over the world. He was an activist uh, uh, protesting America's actions as well as things that were going on in Central America. If you are my age, the, you know you hear things like Guatemala and El Salvador and you kind of get a little nervous because in the 80s that was just a raging part of the world. The atrocities that happened in, in that place are now just being told for the first time. And it was a part of a very convoluted political landscape. But it was one of those moments that I think Henry saw as a, as a priest, as a pastor, as a scholar that was there just wasn't a whole lot of concern about those things. And and in the culture that we live in, people didn't seem to care very much. And so he was deeply driven to get people to be involved with what was happening in Central America. In fact, when I was a seminary student, uh, I I never took his class, which I greatly regret. but several students in my seminary went down to Harvard to take his class, and they were really moved by how incredibly activist he was in his teaching. I think I've told you the story where he was talking about Central America in his class, and he said, we need to know what's happening there. And I don't mean what was happening there last week, but we need to know what's happening right now. I have an airline ticket right here. It's free 9-11, uh, so you can change the names. I have a ticket right now. I can't go, but someone from this class needs to go. The flight is leaving in three hours. Who is willing to go. And about five hands shot up and they came up with some rock, paper, scissors type of thing. But ultimately ended up with one student left the class, ran back to his dorm, packed his bags and got on the plane out of Logan and landed in El Salvador so that he could tell the class uh, that would meet on Tuesday, Thursday, he'd be back on Thursday to tell people what was going on in El Salvador. So that was how incredibly motivated Henry was in terms of his political views, his understanding of grace. Uh, but he was also deeply, deeply overwhelmed. I think as he tells the story, he was in some ways trying to become savior for the world, which was not his job description. And it led to him uh, leaving Harvard uh, the next year. And he's written about this in many, many places. But he left Harvard and he ended up in one of the large communities, which is a community with uh, uh, for disabled persons. And he needed to live in an entirely different world. But he wrote this text with his own lostness in mind. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about this idea of lostness because the at least the story of the younger brother orients around his going to a far country and his experience of being entirely lost. And I can tell you that I couldn't write this book, but when I read it, I knew that feeling of being incredibly unmoored while in faith, uh, totally lost. Um, as a, a young pastor in my early 20s or, or uh, late 20s, early 30s as a youth pastor, I had this community of students that I loved dearly. And it was one of those rare communities of a very, very honest 
community. It's Shannon uh, Nelson, who was a part of that group and several others, where we just knew each other well. We, we were living life together. We were attractive as a community of teenagers for kids that would be in crisis. And so uh, each week, we would have new kids that came in, and they brought all kinds of crises. And I think over about a two-year period, uh, I worked myself to the point of where I was so incredibly brittle that I remember one time just taking a phone call that was just a slight, inane critique. Nothing big, nothing small. And I've told you this story before, but I was so overwhelmed with kind of living in the crises of the students that I was around. And I mean, when I mean crises, I'm talking about ninth graders who were already not only addicted, but very much a part of, uh, of the sales force for pharmaceuticals around the, the area, all sorts of things. I mean, a weekly experience for me was to drive a block from here. There was a house uh, kind of near the famed lacrosse house that was one of the, the main drug houses for teenagers. And there was this uh, woman named Peyton. She was an old woman of the world, probably about 23 or 24. And she kind of received all the the teenage boys and girls that were kind of addicted. And so uh, we would lose kids to this house and their parents couldn't find them. And at least four or five times I had to like drive by this house and try to get in. I was young enough at that point that I could kind of walk up and get in the house. A few times I drove by with parents hiding in the back of the car with blankets over them to find their 17-year-old who was in there somewhere and it finally got to a point when I would drive up to this house. Actually, Phil and Susan, it, it's kind of one of your neighbors. But <laughs> they would see me and people would start jumping out of the house and running away. Uh, but that was the kind of life that I was, was living. But literally one simple critique just put me in tears to the point of, you, you know that feeling where you cry and you can't stop crying and you can't kind of catch yourself and you know you can't drive home. And I remember calling Mimi that day and saying, I need to go home. I I can't drive home, and you have to drive me home, and I can't explain to you why somebody saying, why did you start this at 8 o'clock instead of 7 o'clock, would put me in a situation where I need you to come and take me home, but that's exactly it. And so that was, I know this feeling, a feeling when you're stretched so thin, you've tried so hard, and no matter how hard you're trying, it doesn't seem to be working out for you. And this is the place where where Henry wrote this book, and, and was a Part of his reflection, uh, it first began on his intrigue of Rembrandt's painting of the return of the prodigal son. Are you guys familiar with that painting? would love for you to Google that, look that up, put it on your screen this week, and, and look carefully at that painting. A lot of the things that we'll talk about in the next several weeks relate to his impressions of this. But let me give you his definition of lostness, and then I'm going to turn it back to you and see if you want to tell a story or two about experiences that you might have that relate to this. Um, But what he described as lostness as he looked at the story of the son who's left. And remember, in ancient Near Eastern customs, the world was oriented around family, around clan, around place. You know, I've kind of anthropologically geeked out on you a few times and read you a few, what, what was it, a, um, a, an Apache text last year that talked about how place entirely can orient people's lives. And so when you're thinking about the ancient Near East, the, the geography that they lived in, the family, the clan that they were in, that was what gave meaning to their life. This son who has left has done something that is absolutely egregious in, in the customs of that era is he's not just asked for his estate. That could be done before, but he's asked to dispose of his father's estate. Now, uh, Jordan could ask his dad for every, you know, his portion of the estate. How many siblings do you have, Jordan? 
So half, you know, you could ask for your half. Uh, and, and that was not uncommon, but the assumption would be if Jordan did that, you wouldn't dispose of the assets because that's how your father would live and support the family on that. But this brother has basically said to his dad, uh, it's a wonderful insight, it seems like, Dad, you're just living too long and you're holding me back. And if you were dead... I could have my half of the estate, and I could do whatever with it. So if you'll give me half, and I will do whatever I want to with it, essentially we're going to live as if you are dead and I am alive. That's the contract that's played out here. And so that's what this son has done, is he's pretended that his father is entirely dead. He's cut himself off from everything that would have given him meaning in his life, which is family, clan, the place that he lives. And he's kind of headed off to the kind of the biblical version of shooters, which they often just call a distant country. Uh, and if, but, but that's, you know, have that in mind. So he's kind of taken off for shooters, a distant country, and that's what's at play here. Um, this is, let me read you just a couple of words, and then this is coming back at you at kind of this type of lostness that's being described here. This is Henry Nouwen talking about his own lostness. Constantly falling back into an old trap before I'm even fully aware of it, I find myself wondering why someone hurt me, rejected me, or didn't pay attention to me. Without realizing it, I find myself brooding about someone else's success or my loneliness in the way that the world abused me. Despite my conscious intentions, I often catch myself daydreaming about becoming rich, powerful, and very famous. All of these mental games reveal to me the fragility of my faith, that I am the beloved one on whom God's favor rests. I'm so afraid of being disliked, blamed, put aside, passed over, ignored, persecuted, and killed that I'm constantly developing strategies to defend myself and therefore assure myself of the love I think I need and deserve. In so doing, I move far away from my father's home and choose to dwell in a distant country. Um, he's written many, many times as here is this priest who's lived a vow of poverty, who, um, who uh, was world famous, teaching at one of the greatest institutions in the world, and just saying, you know what, honestly, I'd just like to go out and party with the kids. It just wearies me that I'm constantly the one at the home that the kids come back to. I'd like to reverse that role. And so for him, lostness is this intense looking at other people's lives and saying, why did Lindsay get that promotion when I didn't? Or what, why is Mark so successful at this and I'm not? Or this constant comparison, this constant hoping to be better, this sense of loneliness, this asking, why am I lonely? And if I live in a world that has so many opportunities, why am I lonely? And why do I talk about a loving God when I feel like there's no love in my life? He's written beautifully, as he would say, raw, bloody text on that type of lostness. Uh, so Maybe one of the reasons this text has resounded at me is that that's what it looks like for me sometimes. That profound sense of comparison, that profound sense of maybe duty when I wanted to just be the one who was having the meltdown uh, is, is at times what lostness. And in fact, when I'm in my worst places in life, it's where 
my sense of duty becomes so dominant that it's the only thing that I can see with my life. No matter what is beautiful in the panorama that I could look at, I only see obligation and I only see duty. Now let me turn that back to you. This is I wanted to do some storytelling on this. What does lostness look like for you? Uh, here's three ways to ask, ask that question. Just grab whatever resonates with you. What does leaving your place of meaning look like for you? When you separate your life from that which gives it real and true meaning, what does it look like for you? Um, what do you deny or uproot when you leave? What's the thing that you push back on that you, 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 when, when you find yourself in? What's, what's the thing that would root you, but you jettison it to find yourself in a distant country? Or as, as he wrote here, what are you dreaming about? What is your imagination about? I know for me, I catch myself at times having heroic imaginations. If I could just say the right thing, if I could just pray the right thing, if I could just meet with that person enough, if I could just do enough, if I could just write something good enough, if I could just see it clearly enough, then it would matter. So what does it look like for you? What does lostness look like for you? What does leaving something that roots you look like for you? What are your imaginations? What are your dreams when you're leaving the things that give you sense, a sense of meaning and purpose? What does it look like for you? I realize that's a very vulnerable question, but it's a Mayus way. I'm pretty confident that there's some answers to that. I think I can respond in the context of work, uh, leaving a job of which I had all the, I would say, Freedom, ability, resources, flexibility, empowerment, and an actual results and that I ever dreamt of as a young and going into a place where nothing has worked. Nothing at all has worked, and I have exhausted all possibility of doing anything. It's, I'm completely lost. I'm just not knowing how to even move forward day by day. So it's, it's been a really interesting, and, uh, I would say, comparison. Is the lostness for you, Jordan, is it the disorientation? Is it the, the, your sense of failure of not being able to accomplish what you want to accomplish? Or is it a disconnection from something that was really, really meaningful to you? I think it allowed me to see the process of getting past the job as who I am. So that kind of continued you know, development and getting so far beyond that to knowing that you're not even necessary. And so, so existing in that space from going from a previous place where you were integral to the, like, just the ongoing life of, 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 a, of a place to nothing. You know, it's just it's an interesting existence. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, it's just work. Yeah. No. I mean, we live in a culture, right, where work permeates. I mean, we don't live with these sharp boundaries, do we, between work and living and family and relationship and all those things. And so for you, having that sense of purpose and meaning in your vocation when it's absent is, is powerfully disorienting. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Jordan. Other people, describe what lostness looks like for you. Tim. Yeah, Brett. For me, I've had a couple different places where I've had very strong connection, um, especially during college and a little bit after college. But for me, it's always been the, the loss of relationships that hurts and is the most painful. So having to leave a place, and I think I think sometimes it gets tied to the place, but it's really about the people. And so what I do is I try to 
hold on and grab onto those relationships as tightly as possible, and it makes it difficult to transition into a new place and rebuild and make new friendships. Um, but it's there's something in that, and for me, the depth of place is in the just in the people that are there. I had a dear friend, I'm kind of living in that reality, Brett, I had a dear friend who has lost um, her main pattern of relationships. And she had a friend say uh, to this friend, she said, you know, everybody likes you, but you're kind of like vanilla ice cream. No one would ever choose you. <laughs> and so that's a profoundly intense, right, when, when, you, when you see relationships that give you a a an orientation to your life, a familiarity. I mean, what? I mean, think of the power that you have uh, when somebody who's known you for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, the freedom that, that's a part of those relationships. We live in a place where very few people are connecting or around people who know them that well or that long. I think Jenny might be, are you the only one in this community that grew up in Durham? Anybody else grew up in Durham as part of the MSW? Oh, Elizabeth, third grade though. <laughs> <laughs> so, sort of. Mary Elizabeth Hanty is going to be interning with us. She and I went to first grade. We're in the same class. There you go. So, there you go. And Brian. So, that's right. So, so just this little row here, everybody else. And, and Rachel. So, not many people here probably have a ton of people that they bump into or will bump into next week that has an image of how geeky you looked in the sixth grade, right? Somebody else, what does lostness look like for you? Oh, I'm sorry. Rachel. Um, I, I felt a, a sense of lostness and not being able to um, conform to American Christian culture, especially since it was a part of what, like, how I grew up and, like, still seeing, um, I guess, some of my peers, like, fitting into that, those stereotypes pretty well, and just me, like, not being able to, and just kind of failing, or not wanting those, some of those things, um, and it can be disorienting, um, trying to, like, feel like you're the only one who's saying that, like, yeah, my faith, how I process my faith matters when your peers aren't. How many people in this room would say that authenticity has got you in trouble at some point in time? I mean, that there was a clear way that if you had just laughed at the joke, if you would have just behaved, you had just raised your hands at the right time, it would have been okay, but you couldn't do that for some reason. Absolutely. And, and that can be incredibly disoriented because you, you see patterns of people around you seem perfectly content in the thing that makes you feel discontent. One more person. What does lostness look like for you? Uh, we uh, just moved from Asheville to here, and, and sometimes uh, I find this uh, cycle happen where I, I get excited about something new, a new, a new place, a new opportunities, new hope for a new life. But then um, when I get here, I get very disoriented and I get mad. And then I also cycle, like I hit myself, like I go, what were you thinking? That's so stupid to, to have hope and it's like a weird kind of smack. I think it's some way to find my ground. I'm doing it through smacking myself or something. I don't know. Or, yeah. How many people have made that speech to themselves? Like, 
How incredibly stupid were you in having hope over this, right? (laughs) Have you had that talk with yourself? These are the stories that we find ourselves trapped into, and, and, and we often find or ask the question, how do we get out of these stories? I'll cut us off right here, but I would encourage you, this is a question that I would love for you to ask each other, is what does it look like for you to be disoriented, disconnected, not knowing what you're about or what you're doing? Uh, in many ways, I would suspect that all of our spiritual autobiographies have that place. Let's talk briefly about coming home, uh, rechanging our story, uh, finding a sense of meaning. Uh, there's there's a, f- a few things that this story, I think, reminds us of. Um, Henry Nouwen said this beautifully. Uh, is he's, when he uses the term childhood, and I understand that, that this is a dangerous metaphor, family and childhood for some people are blessed times for others were times of torment. Uh, So it's a little dangerous to use this, but he's using it from kind of the ancient Near Eastern perspective that for the the younger son in the story, it was going back to the place, back to the clan, back to the father, and back to the family that rooted him. He, He had kind of no meaning outside of those places. And so for him, it was refining his childhood. It was, it was re-narrating what his childhood meant to him. Now, all of us, did anybody really ever pack a bag like a stick and a, a blanket and walk out? How many people ran away from home at one point? <laughs> Who ran away the longest? <laughs> anybody more than a day? Exactly, yeah. So we've all done it, or we've all dreamed about it, or we've all dreamed about how mad everybody would be if we did it, right? But for him, um, coming home was reconnecting with his childhood. And Nowen writes about that beautifully, is that for him, childhood means recognizing his sense of being created by and loved by God. When, when, he is being, when he describes himself as a child, he is not describing himself as a Harvard theologian, and as an activist, a writer of 50 books, he is describing this simple, small moment when he can say, yes, I am deeply aware that I am loved by God. And so in some ways, as we begin to narrate our return, there is this return to a space that perhaps we reach a place in our life where we see that we are deeply loved, beautifully made, wonderfully imagined in the mind of God. Uh, Now, what happens in the story? As he's coming home, and what does he do on the way home? What did you do when you took the car with only like semi-permission from your parents and you wrecked it? (laughs) What did you do? (laughs) Story. It's a story. And and how did you do it, Ben? Rationale. It's like, well, you know, this happened, and I was like this other thing. So yeah. you got a way of expo- explanation. You created an explanation. In fact, at that time in my life, one of the students I remember uh, stole the family car. He was like 15 and a half. He had driver's training, but he wasn't a driver yet. Uh, but he took the car because he had something that he needed to do. His parents wouldn't take him to do. He went down the driveway full speed and wrecked into 
a school bus coming by. <laughs> now, if you're that kid, right, you've taken the car, you're not 16 yet, you're not supposed to be driving, and you have wrecked it, and you've wrecked it, and there are a bunch of screaming first graders in your, in your driveway because they're afraid. They're not hurt, but they're afraid. You better come up with what a really good story. I mean, you know, that may be my friend Brandon was on fire on the other side of the neighborhood, and I had to go get him. And there better be a story like that. That's what the brother does in this circumstance is he, he creates an explanation. He rehearses it. He works on it. And how does it go? How does the explanation go in the story? How does the father responds favorably? Not favorably? It's almost like he doesn't listen. He doesn't even hear it, does he? The, the, the rehearsal is useless, right? And, and a, a, one of the most important things of a return is the realization that your explanations are unnecessary. Because if you're truly, truly loved, and particularly in this case by an infinite God, what explanation do you need to give? And so those might be two of the most important ways that we reorient ourselves in lostness. One is finding the place that gives us meaning and returning to that space. And for, I would suggest that to get out of the world of comparison, competition, success, and whatever, it means being able to say, I am obsessively loved by God regardless of my circumstance. And realizing that an explanation of your circumstance is not needed. Now, how do you do those things? Um, a final point that I would make is returns are filled with discipline. Is, uh, you, maybe Ben doesn't need to work on his explanation. But returning is an act of discipline. The closer that you get home, the more painful it is. I had a friend who was a very prominent pastor in Boston in a church where getting divorced would have probably ended his career. And he was in a sabbatical on the West Coast. Um, It was kind of like a surprise divorce. His wife never joined him out there. And he kind of realized halfway through the summer they were separated. It kind of became the talk of the church uh, in a few weeks. And then at the end of the summer sabbatical, he had to go back to Boston. And we talked on the phone every day as he kind of traversed slowly across the United States, kind of going, this is not going to be pleasant for me. In fact, I'm not even sure whether I'll be employed when I get back at the end of this journey. Um, But there was a discipline that he had every day that said, I'm just going to keep driving. I am in St. Louis, and I will be in Memphis. And I will be in Memphis. And in fact, he had kind of charted a non-direct way back. He was going to do some things that (laughs) that he wanted to do along the way. And, And I kept saying, keep your plan. I mean, you wanted, to, uh, you wanted to eat barbecue in Memphis, eat barbecue in Memphis. Uh, pray long enough, hard enough, think kindly enough about yourself that you can drive from Memphis to Nashville and from Nashville to Knoxville and from Knoxville to I-95. And from there, you can contemplate suicide all the way up north of I-95. <laughs> but that's just normal, right? Uh, but but it, the, the return was this decided act of profound discipline. Um, one of the things that I love and adore about SK, uh, who is our lay leader this year in the church, is her passion for spiritual direction. And I think one of the things that we sometimes forget is that there is a profound practice and discipline 
that we do that helps us imagine ourselves to be loved by God. Sometimes I get nervous that if you're part of Emmaus Way, you may hear week after week after week of the things that we've done politically and missionally and socially, and I love every last one of those things. But I hope that you would never detach them from the sense of the hard work and discipline that goes in terms of being able to experience and imagine yourself as being loved by God. So I'll stop here. We'll pick this up because we're going to finish this part of the story. We're going to turn to the older brother next week. But I want to remind you just kind of one of the outcomes that I'd hope for is that you would start meeting with each other, that you would start connecting one-on-one to do these relational meetings. And and as a part of these relational meetings, um, ask each other a little bit about your spiritual autobiography. Uh, From this week, one question might come up would be, what has lostness look for you, like for you? And what does the discipline of return look like for you? What is that? And, 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 and remember that everybody in this room will probably be returning to a different place. I think that's where you get in trouble is when you imagine the destination is exactly alike for everyone in the room. So listen really carefully about what home looks like for somebody because it might be decidedly different from what it looks like for you. And listen generously to each other without the sense of, hey, after Luke told me this story and I told him my story, and now we've got to figure out which home is better to be in. Uh, that's, that's, again, the very, that's explanation again, rather than being unconditional. So tell those stories. Next week, we're going to look at a little bit more of not just the story of reversal, but the story that probably hits me the closest is the story of responsibility, of duty, of getting things done. And, and that will continue to provide us a vocabulary of storytelling. But Mark, I want to invite you to kind of lead us to a confession and absolution. As I was looking at the music tonight, uh, which I was so excited to do, um, it was really easy for me in preparing this to think of about a million points of confession uh, for me. Probably my greatest is uh, seeing myself as a person who's good at explanations or good at duty or some of those things. Uh, but maybe you'll find yourself free in this moment to, to release yourself from the patterns that disconnect you from the places that you need to be. Thanks, Mark. I think of this, um, this Alanis Morissette song uh, as being sort of a... This, to me, strikes, uh, strikes me as sort of an act of personal storytelling, um, in this case, from Alanis, who wrote it. Um, this is a, a piece of very vulnerable art um, that, that just makes me think very confessionally. Yeah.
By, uh, by Rich Mullins that has been a, a real beacon of hope for me um, in some dark times uh, in years past. And I had not really uh, listened to Rich that, that much uh, in, the last, in the last few years, uh, but Brandon and I have been talking about Rich Mullins lately for, for various reasons, and uh, he even recommended this song this week, and I appreciate it. I think it's a good fit for for, for sort of understanding and, and pondering what this individual homecoming might look like, um, as well as just, just being as much a confession as it is an absolution. Sometimes my life 
Here's a confession. I was kind of leading into this just a moment ago, but one of the things that was one of the hardest lessons that I've had to learn constantly, and I find myself in phases where I unlearn this and have to relearn this, but for me, the sense of lost and returning, the thing that I most want to do when I'm in that experience of lostness is to do a couple things. Figure out and organize. 
And it's taken me a million times, years to realize that figuring out and organizing never get you any closer, or at least they don't for me, is I never really figure out the thing that I'm obsessive about that, whether it's reading, thinking, writing, trying to put it together. But one of the things that I'm constantly confronted with is that often it's the simplest practices that reorient us toward meaning, purpose, love, and particularly practices that allow us to say that I'm loved by God. And so what I wanted you to think about tonight uh, before we head to the table is what does that practice look like for you? What are the practices that you do, the things that you do? It might be finding silence and sitting in silence. I know there's several people at Emmaus Way that used to always say that they took an art Sabbath that they, no matter what they did, all week long, they took a creative day, often uh, the hours before church, and, and made something, painted something, created something, built something, knocked something down. Uh, but what are the practices for you that reorient you, that change your sense of direction, that point you toward place, that point you toward the places and the things that give you the meaning where you're able to say that you're wonderfully created and amazingly loved? What are those practices? And, and those are perhaps the things that we need to constantly share with each other because it's persons who remind us often that we need to sit back in those simple practices. Certainly for us as a community, the table is one of those practices. Sometimes that uh, we might talk about the most complicated subject in the world and say, but you know what? The bottom line is we don't know. And we hope that you'll continue talking about this. But in our sense of not knowing, we're going to turn around, we're going to go, we're going to break bread, we're going to pour wine and juice to each other and recognize that in this instance, we're doing something. We're fashioning a practice that allows us to sense a little bit of what the kingdom of God is like and to live in that kingdom presence. So we break bread for each other. We pour the juice and wine for each other, reminding ourselves that each person is deeply significant. You'll pour for somebody who's behind you. They'll pour whoever is in front of you. We're all connected to that practice. We will practice an open table tonight like we do every week by saying that everyone in this room is entirely welcome, fully welcome. Uh, There is no level or hierarchy present at this table, which will not be our experience tonight, tomorrow, uh, for the rest of the week. But for this moment, there won't be hierarchy. There will be complete welcome. There will be an opportunity for you to be desperately needed. Uh, And perhaps even in this practice, we'll be reminded of a greater story of God's brokenness, not for an abstract reality, but simply for us. Um, uh, This chapter on the prodigal son, Henry Nouwen, closed it with a thought that I'd never thought of when I read it 20 years ago for the first time, was that the ultimate prodigal for him, and it wasn't part of the story, was the recognition that Christ is described in the New Testament as a prodigal, one who had left that which was deeply comfortable to him, stripped himself of every form of power that he might have, suffered death on the cross at the hands of the state as an act of reconciliation. So join me at the table tonight to break bread and wine and juice and pour wine and juice for each other and to live into the practice that reminds us what is indeed the source of our ability to be said we're loved by God. Join me at the table.